tonight, chapter 2, and we'll look at verse 18, beginning verse 18 and reading down through verse number 29. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 18 through 29. We have not referred very much to our chart, but I think if you have a personal chart of the book of Revelation, you discover on that chart as well as on our large chart behind me here that we are dealing with those uh, with the area that is known often as the age of the church, the church age, beginning in its great ministry on the day of Pentecost, though having been in the mind of God from eternity, yet its great ministry begun under the direction and the empowering of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And the age of the church will continue until the Lord comes in the air to rapture out his believing church unto himself. And so we are living in that period known as the church age. uh, When the Lord by his grace reaches out to call out a people unto himself. We have discovered thus far in our studies of these seven churches of Asia to whom our Lord writes... We have discovered that uh, they not only bear with them a very present message, that is, for the churches that were existent at the time of the writing, but they also have a very personal application. We apply the truths of the Lord's Word to uh, these particular churches in a very personal way. And then there is also a perennial message, as we have said, or an application or key. And that perennial aspect of it simply is saying that in any age of the church, some of these conditions may exist, and indeed they have. And I think you'll find that true as you read these seven letters to the seven churches. Then yet there is that prophetical aspect that deals with the long term or the overview of the church from its beginning ministry at Pentecost until the coming again of our Lord Jesus in that moment that we have termed the rapture, the great gathering out of God's people unto himself. So there is a prophetic message. And we have seen as well that each of these seven churches are designate of seven particular periods in the history of the church. We have noted the church of Ephesus is referring to that time of the early apostolic church up until the year around the year 300 A.D. from its inception up to around 300. If you have a Schofield Bible, Schofield puts the period around 316 A.D. up to that point. The church of Ephesus then covers that period. The second church was the church of Smyrna, which runs from the period of about 300 uh, A.D. uh, up until about 500 A.D. The church of Pergamos, uh, which is the third of the seven churches, uh, runs in a distinct period up to about the year 500. Now we come tonight to the church of Thyatira, beginning at verse 18. And I think you'll be, uh, that you will recognize, if you're a student of history, that the things predominant in this period are in this particularly chosen church. Portrays that period of the church history from around 500 A.D. up to the year 1500. It is a period in history known as the Dark Ages. And there were a lot of things that transpired that indeed has affected the religious world today in that period of time known as the Dark Ages. Let's begin then at verse 18 and uh, read the message to the church of Thyatira. And unto the angel of the church of Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. I know thy works and charity and service and faith and thy patience and thy works and the last to be more than the first. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee because thou sufferest or permittest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts, 
And I will give unto every one of you according to your works. But unto you I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden. But that which you have already, hold fast till I come. And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my father. And I will give him the the morning star. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. You've already noted, I'm sure, that this is the longest of the seven letters that our Lord sends to the church. The church of Thyatira, the city of Thyatira, was located southeast of the other church we've just studied recently, the church known as Pergamos. In the city of Thyatira, industry was a very big thing, and it was, as a result, bringing great prosperity into this particular area of the world. It was a city of commerce. It was a city and an area of much trade. Archaeologists recently have brought to our attention the fact that in the city of Thyatira, there were many uh, labor guilds, uh, or perhaps we might call them unions today. Uh, unions are guilds that had to do with uh, uh, potters and uh, tanners and workers in bronze, uh, as well as uh, a matter of uh, the guild of cloth dyers. Now, you remember in the book of Acts, There is a mention of this particular town and a woman who lived in the city of Thyatira. In Acts chapter 16, you'll find at beginning at verse 14, the incident where Paul was preaching and a woman with the name of Lydia heard the message of Paul the apostle. As a result, this woman was along with a group of her women uh, friends and they were down by the riverside dyeing their cloth. When, they, when she heard Paul preach, the Lord, the Bible says, opened her heart. She received Christ as Savior. Her heart overflowed in love and appreciation for the messengers of God and invited them to come down to her house and to abide there. Now, I think uh, probably it was in the house of Lydia that the, the church of Thyatira perhaps begun. And I think that's a very great possibility. Lydia, by the way, was the first of the European converts under the ministry of Paul the Apostle. And so Lydia must have undoubtedly had a great deal to do with the the supporting of and the encouragement of that particular group of believers in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's just a brief background and overview of the city of Thyatira and what happened there. Now, first of all, in the letter, I want you to notice, if you will, the character of our Lord. Remember back in chapter 1, when John had that great vision of the Son of God, there are many aspects of his character that were portrayed and revealed. We have just recently seen how I saw him with a sword, a two-edged sword, sharp two-edged sword that proceeded out of his mouth. He used that in applying the message to the previous church, to this one, the church of Pergamos. As well, in every one of these seven letters, the Lord chooses one aspect of his character that fits the particular situation of that local church and of its message. Notice here that our Lord introduces himself as the Son of God. The Son of God. Always in Scripture, everything that you find has a definite reason and a definite purpose. Nothing you'll find in the Bible is given to us for filler or just to occupy space. There's a special reason, I think, uh, that the Lord introduces himself to these in Thyatira as first the Son of God. As we've already stated, this period of the church of Thyatira fits into that age of history known as the Dark Ages, between 500 and 1500 A.D. It was during that very period of time that Romanism really began to rise and become a predominant religious force. 
the Roman church begun its, its great, uh, uh, began to reach out its tentacles and begin to establish itself as a religious power in the world. It was in that particular period of time that the very rule of the church was given and surrendered to one man. And they entitled him and gave him the title as Pope. The Pope claimed to be the vicar of Christ. The word vicar simply means a substitute for Christ. In other words, the period of the Dark Ages saw saw a giving rise to substituting man in the stead of the Holy Spirit. In other words, Jesus said when he went away, the Holy Spirit would come. He indeed would be the director of the affairs of the church. Not a man made of but simple flesh and blood. In the year 1606 A.D., Pope Boniface III was crowned as universal bishop over the church. And that very act marked the beginning of what we know as the papacy, the rule of the pope over the church. I think as well you'll find that the selection and the sovereign choice of this particular church to represent this time period is very significant. The name Thyatira uh, 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 comes from actually two words. And the two words, uh, one of them means uh, a sacrifice or an incense offering, a perfume. The other part of the word Thyatira indicates continual. So what we have, ministry, the Lord saying to us in the choosing of this church of Thyatira is... That here is a period that is going to be known for the rise of a religious rite and ceremony known as the continual offering. Today it is known as the mass. For in the mass it is a continual offering of the body of Christ. Which you will find is not in accord with what the word of God teaches us at all. In the book of Hebrews, let me ask you to turn quickly there to chapter 9. And read with me, beginning at verse 25, where the scripture very clearly indicates that there is no necessity for a continual offering of the body of Christ. But here the writer says, Hebrews 9 verse 25, Nor yet that he should offer himself often, as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with blood of others. For then must he often have offered or suffered since the foundation of the world. But now, and notice this word, but now once in the end of the world of the age hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. So here we have the very record of Scripture, and there are many other such, uh, such like Scriptures that bear to us the fact that Jesus Christ offered Himself for our sins once and for all. There is no necessity then of repeating, whether it be in symbol, whether it be in ritual or ceremony, the offering of the body of Christ. We indeed here in our church observe the Lord's Supper, but it is not an offering of the body of Christ. It is simply, as the New Testament teaches us, that as often as we do this, take of the bread, the unleavened bread, we drink of the fruit of the vine or the wine, and it is only a reminder to us of the death that our Lord endured for the putting away of our sins. So the scripture says that as often as you do this, simply do it in remembrance of me. Not as some means of atonement for sin or of some uh, uh, power of redemption or regeneration. I think it's also significant that in this very particular period of time, there was also a, a heathen cult out of Babylon that exalted Semiramis as the queen of heaven. And also she was referred to as the mother of God. Now with that in mind, I think you can see why out of necessity our Lord chose this title when he wrote to Thyatira and introduced himself not as the son of Mary, the mother of God or the queen of heaven, but as the son of God. 
he has always referred to that in that very sense. So here we have an indication of deity itself. And as deity, he alone is worthy and ought to be worshipped. Romanism also at this period of time begun to exalt Mary above the Savior. And men begun and were instructed to pray to Mary. I know many of our Roman friends, and I, may I say this by way of parenthesis, I am not attacking Catholic people. I don't want you to ever think that. But I will attack erroneous doctrine, whether it be in the Catholic Church, Methodist Church, Presbyterian Church, or even in a Baptist Church. So don't you think what I'm saying, I'm saying as a personal attack against any individual who may be a part of the Roman system. But I do think we, we owe ourselves the, the opportunity to understand the truth of what God is saying. So men at that period of time began to exalt Mary above the Savior. And men began to pray unto her, asking her to intercede on their behalf before God. They're very well known, uh, uh, I don't know if it's the uh, rosary or what, or a repetition, but you'll often hear the people say, pray for us uh, sinners now at the altar at the time of our death. And they address in their prayer to Mary. Somehow they have been convinced that Mary has a little better pull with God uh, through the Son than, than any of us. But the Bible invites us to come boldly under the throne of grace. And the scripture also tells us that we are a royal nation of priests. That is, the believer has given to him by God the, the very position of priest before God. He can come to God himself and intercede for others, pray for himself, and so forth, offer his worship unto God. Paul made that very clear, I think, that there is but one go-between between God and man. And the verse, I think, itself would be enough to silence those who teach that you must go through some saint or through Mary in order to get to God. Paul, Paul, pardon me, Paul wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5, and he said that there is but one mediator go-between between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Very specific. There is no doubt about what the scripture says in that very respect. In John chapter 14, at verse 13 and 14, our Lord teaches us to pray not in Mary's name or in the name of some saint, but rather in the name of the Lord Jesus. In John 14, he declares, whatsoever you shall ask in my name. Also in the 16th chapter of John, at verse 23, the same thing is reiterated. Whatsoever you shall ask the Father in my name. And then John 14, verse 6, I think, just clenches the matter. And Jesus said, and no man comes unto the Father but by me. So yet we have in this era of the church of Thyatira, the prophetic message of it, is showing us how that men now are pulling away from God. They are now in, incorporating in their religious practices uh, the, the practice, uh, the, acts, the, the, the ways of paganism, of heathenism. It is not an excluding of the things of God of Christ. But it is, rather than a separation from that, it is an infiltration of the practice of heathenism and pagans. Oftentimes, when a priest goes to a foreign country as a missionary, he does not tell the natives there who worship their gods that they must throw them away, but simply add to their list of gods the Lord God Jehovah to also worship the Lord Jesus Christ, to incorporate in their life as a, quote, so-called Christian, unquote, the practices that, long say, that they have long practiced. Now, that's not the teaching of the New Testament at all. God teaches us to have a break with the past that our lives are made new in Christ, that we're not to walk henceforth anymore as do the Gentiles, but we're to follow after the Lord Jesus Christ. I remind you this of Mary. Mary was a sinner like anybody else. And she needed a Savior, just like all sinners need a Savior. In the book of Luke chapter 1 and verse 47, Mary actually refers to Jesus as her Savior. And no one needs a Savior who's not a sinner. Mary recognized as pure and as precious a woman as she was, chosen of God, yet she realized that she needed a Savior. And I want to add to that this. 
regards to how pure and, and separate and clean morally your life may be. I tell you that every man and woman in this world needs a Savior because all of us have sinned and we'll come short of the glory of God. He introduced himself then not only as the Son of God, but notice what else he says. Who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire and his feet are like fine brass, literally burnished brass, or that that is brazen. Now, here our Lord introduces that trait of his character, that is, of his ability to discern eyes like a flame of fire. The discerning eye of the Lord Jesus sees beyond the pretension, the hypocrisy, the counterfeit, the religious veneer. He sees beyond that. And he wants these people to know that he sees and that he discerns. Not only that, but his feet, the scripture says, like brass. Brass in the scripture has ever been a symbol of judgment. A symbol of judgment. And here the appearance of our Lord is revealed as one who with feet like burning hot brass trampling upon the foe and the enemy. So he is not only a God who indeed is divine, but he is also a God who discerns and he is also a God who is able to destroy he is a God of judgment where judgment is necessary. So there is the characteristics of our Lord as he brings the message of Thyatira. You following me? Secondly then, I want you to notice the Lord's commendation to the people in Thyatira. He commends them. Isn't it blessed that our Lord does not overlook one thing of good in a person's life? Now, I didn't say if there were good qualities in your life that you're saved you're going to heaven. But I'm telling you that he does not overlook even the little things that we do in service for him. His eyes are upon us. Uh, thou God seest me and God knows us and he takes note of what we do. Even if people do not. Even if men fail to thank us and recognize what we have done. As we do it unto the Lord, I tell you the day of reward is coming. Just be faithful to him. Jesus said, even a man who gives a cup of cold water in my name... He will not lose or go without reward. And so our Lord commends these. Notice how he commends them beginning here at verse 19. I know thy works and charity and service and faith, their patience and thy works and the last to be more than the first. Now it appears that here... Works is the predominant thing and the point of emphasis in the church of Thyatira. They are busily engaged in working. Notice he says, I know thy works. Notice again in verse 19, and I know thy works. And notice this, and the last to be more than the first. They are increasing in their activity. There was a constant buzz of activity and of service rendered. But he says also, I know your works and charity. He links them together. Your works and your love. Love indeed is the very thing that inspires the child of God to labor for him. If we really love the Lord Jesus as we should, we would not have to be primed. We wouldn't have to be begged. We wouldn't have to be bribed. We wouldn't have to be coerced to labor for our Lord Jesus Christ. I believe with all of my heart, love is the cure for many an ill that exists in many a Christian's life. It will solve the problem of prayer. It'll solve the problem of soul winning and witnessing. It'll solve the problem of faithfulness to church. It'll solve the problem of giving as God teaches us to give. If we simply love the Lord indeed as we ought. The greatest of all the virtues of the Christian life, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, is that quality of love. Love is beyond all else. Faith, hope, and charity. And the greatest of these is charity. And the word meaning, of course, love. But he also commends them for their faith. Their faith. Truly we know this, that it is by grace through faith that we are brought into the family of God. It is not by prayer or by practice, or by profession, but it is by faith in the Lord Jesus that we're even given the right to call ourselves a child of God. But the word faith here indicates not simply believing as one does on the Lord Jesus in order to be saved, but it implies faithfulness. It implies loyalty. It implies fidelity. 
And the Lord is saying to these people in Thyatira, I know how you've labored, I know your works, but I also know how you're faith, have you been faithful, the fidelity, the loyalty indeed that you've shown. You know, some run well at the outset of the Christian life. They come in with a big splash and they go out with a little squirt. That's about it. In other words, our love, instead of growing, often declines. But notice here that they, uh, they are continuing to grow in that love and in their service and in their labor for the Lord Jesus. Love that is simply based on mere physical attraction or emotion will not last. But love that is deep and dedicated and real has a lasting quality about it. Love is eternal, the kind of love that God teaches us in His blessed Word. And then notice He further commends them for their patience, how we need that. Dear Lord, I need patience, the little motto says, and give it to me right now. That's about the way we are. But yet he commends them for their patience. And this fact of patience means their ability to endure under severe adversity and hardship. Sometimes we look at Christians and we identify many as nothing more than chocolate soldiers. As long as everything's going all right, they're fine. But let adversity come and you'll find that they melt away. But here these are commended because they have been patient. They have been patient. They have been willing to suffer long under the weight of time. In spite of the storm clouds, in spite of the raging waves of the sea of life, these held out faithful in their labor and in their service. And I must tell you this before I pass on. And I don't mean pass out or die, but I mean before I move on, maybe that'd be better. Some of y'all done passed out, haven't you? All right, let me give you this. He said, I know thy works and watch. And the last to be more than the first. Let me ask you a question. Are you laboring and working and serving God more now than you did at first? I mean, when you first became a Christian, when you first saved. The Lord said of these people, he said, uh, you're doing more now than you did at the very beginning. So again, a deep-seated and pure love grows deeper in a person's life and thus produces a greater service as time goes by. It does not wane. It grows and grows. In other words, there is a greater sense of responsibility. And that love that's simply begun as chill bumps and a gushing emotion becomes a, a, a sense of real responsibility and commitment to the Lord. Some begin with a big flash, but they pass off the scene like a, a flashing uh, a meteor that goes through the sky. It appears for a while brilliant and promising, but then it is gone. Now, the Lord indeed commended them for their worship. But I think you'll find this, that the Lord desires worship before work. And the thing that appears to me of Thyatirans is that they were so busy working that they found little time to really worship the Lord Jesus. And so it happens even today. We who are children of God can get so busy serving God and working for God, we have no time for personal worship of God, and that's a tragedy. What the Lord seeks for are those who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. Now let me move quickly. Look at verse 20 down through 23, and you'll find now His condemnation. The Lord, first of all, points out the good qualities in these lives. That's a good pattern for anybody to adopt. Uh, always be observant of the good things. And you know, it's sad that sometimes one little thing can go wrong in a person's life and we're really ready to throw them to the uh, social junk pile or the Christian garbage heap instead of recognizing those good qualities. Well, that's unlike the Lord. The good things he commends, but the things that need condemning, indeed he condemns. Verse 20 says, Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which called herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants, commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, she repented not. Behold, I'll cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. I want you to notice four things in these verses. First of all, let me ask you to notice the source of what we'll call the heresy. Indeed, there was a terrible heretical thing occurring in the church of Thyatira. 
By heresy, I simply mean a departure from the orthodox accepted teaching of the Lord's word as given to us. Notice the source of this heresy. Thou sufferest, the verse says, thou permittest that woman Jezebel to teach. Now I want you to notice two things. First of all, you'll find here in Thyatira an indulgent permissiveness. They were what we would call today broad-minded. They were broad-minded. Somebody said the other day about a fellow said, he's so broad-minded, he's flat-headed. Well, there may be a point there. But indulgent permissiveness. They had adopted what so many today have. That we ought to be aggressive in our attack, our denial, and our exposing of that which is erroneous and wrong. We live in a day as they did there, when everybody does his thing. So what, you know, doesn't make any difference. Just be tolerant. Uh, anything goes nowadays, you know. And it's simply because we have adopted in this day a philosophy of no absolutes. That we live in a day of relativism in relation to morals. In other words, it may have been wrong yesterday, but we live in a different age and it's not wrong. And that's what I mentioned this morning. Mr. Turner uh, has given his uh, update on the Ten Commandments. And yet, uh, uh, what a tragedy when you find among even God's people that very same attitude. What may have been wrong yesterday, if it was ever wrong, if it was ever sin, it is still sin in this very present day. Yet when a man or a church stands to denounce sin, he is often accused of being, quote, unloving, or he is intolerant. But my friend, a man would not be loving if he saw you approaching a coiled rattlesnake ready to strike, and you were not aware of it, and he didn't tell you that snake was there and is going to bite you. Would you say, well, the reason I didn't tell you about that, I'm tolerant to rattlesnakes. And I don't want to be accused of not loving rattlesnakes. Well, who loves them anyhow? The truth is, the child of God ought to despise sin. And if he sees sin, and especially the servant of God, he ought to be courageous and strong and dedicated enough to point out that thing that will bring ultimate destruction to men and women. Not only do you find an indulgent permissiveness here, but notice he said, Thou sufferest that woman Jezebel. Here you find an influential personality in the church of Thyatira. Now, whether this woman's name was actually Jezebel or not, we cannot for sure say. But the name, if it is a real name or just a nickname, the name Jezebel literally speaks volumes about what was going on in the church of Thyatira and in this period of time. Let me ask you just to get a brief view of that to look back to the book of 2 Kings chapter 16. The Old Testament book of 2 Kings chapter 16 and read verse 31, 32, and 3. And I think you'll get a, a, a glimpse of, uh, of uh, Jezebel here. Uh, that'll set our thinking right. In 2 Kings chapter uh, 16, or maybe it's 1 Kings, I'm sorry. Uh, 1 Kings chapter 16 and uh, verse, uh, let me see here. Uh, yes, all right. At verse 31. 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 31. And it came to pass as if it had been a light thing for him, talking about Ahab, to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took to wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. And he reared up an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a grove, that is a place where they worship nature. And Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. Now here, when Ahab, the, the king of Israel, goes over and marries a, a woman who is a, a Baal worshiper, a pagan, he violates a principle of Scripture. Paul reiterates that principle in Scripture when he says that, uh, that uh, the believer should not be unequally yoked with the unbeliever. What concord hath Christ with Belial? Uh, what agreement hath darkness with light? And so the whole, punt, the whole point of Scripture is that the child of God should be a separate person. And all how we need to be careful today with the folks with whom we associate. 
the friends that we choose. And many a person has chosen friends that instead of encouraging them to be dedicated to God and to serve God, they are being pulled away and they are being influenced to, to renounce God, to renounce the principles of the Word of God and to follow after those things that would certainly fit in to even the worshipers of Baal in that olden time. But notice something else here. Notice the seriousness of this heresy. In allowing this woman to assume the leadership in their church, the members of Thyatira exposed themselves to much error. In fact, there's about three errors that I think I could point out to you that they're exposing themselves to now by permitting this woman Jezebel who teaches false doctrine, who now teaches the servants of God to be unfaithful to God, to commit fornication, adultery, and not only, I'm sure, as Baal worship was, that involved the physical aspect of adultery, of fornication, but there's also an interpretation of Scripture of spiritual adultery, unfaithfulness to God, not being loyal to God, uh, filled with infidelity spiritually, as it were. And so there are three areas, at least, let me point them out to you. First of all, they were wrong in principle. They were wrong in principle. The scriptural principle is very, very clear. I want you to read this so nobody will get angry with me. You call up God and fuss him out about this. Look in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, 13, and 14. Here is the principle that they have violated. But I suffer not, Paul said, a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. Now don't get mad at me about that verse. I didn't write that. I'm just simply telling you that God says in this instance that the principle has been violated. Notice the woman Jezebel has been given the position of leadership of teaching and in that office was usurping authority over man whom God gave the authority in the family, in the church, and so forth. Now that's not my arrangement, that's God's. I'm just delivering a telegram to you. You can do with it what you will, but you'll have to answer to God either way. And so I do not believe in this day it, it is the right principle for a woman to teach men usurping authority over men. I think that is a scriptural principle that's clear. You may disagree with me, but I love you anyhow. Not only that, but that is the principle was wrong. They permitted this woman to teach her false heresy and doctrine in the church. They were wrong also, not only in principle, but they were wrong in precept. Wrong in precept. The Lord said of this woman, she leads my servants astray. She teaches them to commit fornication, bringing them, seduces them, brings them into adultery. And the whole thought is one of deception. I think it's very interesting to observe that many of the false cults of our day have been either born founded and promoted by women. And I'm not jumping on you women, but I want you to see something. The Seventh-day Adventist, Seventh-day Adventism, started by a woman. Christian science, started by a woman. Uh, Spiritism, started by a woman. Uh, uh, theosophy, uh, theosophy, or however you want to pronounce it, started by a woman. Many of these false cults. Now, you say, well, don't just jump on the, uh, women, folks, preacher. Men have started some of them too, and you're exactly right. But you'll find usually in a religious sense, a woman is referred to in the Bible in a bad sense. That there is something that is out of order. And certainly the order that God had established was not being followed an era was indeed being fostered and promoted in the church of, uh, of Thyatira. What a strange thing it is then that even the Roman church that begun in this period of time have, has given such great acclaim and such great honor to Mary, a woman. Now, certainly God uh, has, has honored women and the Bible uh, ex very explicit and express in that very way. But God has given distinct roles to both men and women. 
And uh, that role, when it is violated, uh, becomes a, a, a trap. It becomes a, a, a pitfall for both men and women. But they were not only wrong in principle and in precept, but they were wrong in practice. That is, this woman was teaching them to commit fornication and eat things sacrificed to idols. Two things, fornication and fellowship. The eating of things sacrificed to idols. Eating is an indication of fellowship. They were fellowshipping with those idol worshipers. Of all the things that God calls for in the church, it is the call for separation. We in this day have those who call themselves uh, new evangelicals. And they believe somehow, not that we should preach separation, but with preach and practice infiltration. In other words, if you want to win the world, you're going to have to get in there with them. One young fellow took it as far down in New Orleans at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. He went out one day, uh, some visitation, and some of his friends happened to be walking down the street and they saw this young preacher sitting in there in a, in a, at a bar and drinking a beer with a sailor. Well, after uh, hours, the fellow came back in the dorm and these fellows uh, accosted him and they said, listen, uh, we passed a bar today and saw you down there drinking a beer with a sailor. And the fellow said, don't be worried about that. Well, he said, I was just witnessing to that fellow. They said, witnessing to him, how's that? Well, he said, you know, if you don't get on the same level with them and kind of get in there with them, uh, you're not going to be able to witness to them. What kind of reasoning is that? In other words, if you want to reach men or in the hog bin, get in the hog bin yourself. If you want to reach the criminal, become a criminal yourself. If you want to reach a murderer, kill somebody and then witness to it. Oh, what foolish philosophy and teaching that is. And yet that's exactly what Jezebel, or the woman who is named Jezebel in Thyatira, was saying. Not separation, but let's infiltrate, get in there among them. But notice another thing here at verse 21, and that's the stubbornness of this heresy. Verse 21 reveals that the Lord says, I gave her time and space to repent, but she repented not. An indication of the long-suffering and the patience of God. And yet that that long-suffering and patience of God was misconstrued. Somehow these thought, well, God hadn't dealt with us. No judgment, bad things happened to us. So God just overlooked it and forgotten it. Oh, they have failed to realize what Paul set down in Romans chapter 2 and verse 4 when he said, Not knowing the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. And somebody here may be saying, well, I've been guilty of so-and-so and my life hadn't been right and the Lord never has done anything to me. An old lightning bolt struck me. I hadn't had a record or anything. Don't you realize that only God in his patience and long-suffering gives you, as he did this woman, space to repent. God gives you a time. And just as he did Jerusalem, when he looked at them, when Jesus came looking at the city of Jerusalem, he said, oh, if thou hadst only known in this thy day the things that belong to thy peace, but now they're hidden from thine eyes. The Lord seems to imply that there is a period of time, and the word space here indicates that, wherein men have opportunity to repent. But I want to tell you something. If you're guilty of sin and God deals with it, you do not have forever to repent of your sins. You don't have forever to get right with God. You don't have forever to square things up with the Lord God. But notice at verse 22 down through verse 23 something else. The stubbornness of this heresy. The stubbornness of this heresy. Three times, well I said, I'm pardon the stubbornness, I'm talking about the suppression, how they suppress it here in verse 22 and 3. The suppression, that is, they're pushing it down. They're not dealing with it. And so the Lord says particularly three things to them and he prefaces it by the little words, I will. In other words, here he's going to tell them what I'm going to do, what I will do unless there's a change. Notice verse 22 as, as you look back here. Verse number 22 and it reads, Behold, I will cast her into a bed and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation except they repent of their deeds. Notice here, even when the Lord announces doom and judgment, there's always the announcement of the possibility of repentance. The Lord had far rather pardon men of their sin than to punish them in their sin. But when men fail to receive the pardon and forgiveness God offers in Christ of the forgiveness of sin, we give a holy God no other alternative but to bring punishment and judgment upon us when we fail. So the prophecies of doom you'll find throughout Scripture you'll find that they're usually uttered in the hopes that uh, that very judgment will not have to come, but rather that men will repent. Look at Jonah and his ministry to Nineveh. 
The Lord's purpose was not that Nineveh should be destroyed, but that Nineveh should repent. But Jonah's message was, repent for 40 days. The Lord's going to rain judgment on this city. The purpose of God in pronouncing that message of doom and judgment was that he might not have to bring that to pass, but rather there would be repentance. Dr. Theodore Epps said concerning this one who was cast, uh, I will cast her into a bed, made this remark, and he said the symbolic significance of a bed of this nature has to do with delusion or deceit. Those who, are, those who persist in false teaching will themselves be deceived. Now those who follow in, follow the false teaching of Jezebel, will themselves be deceived. And as Paul said, they would not receive the, the, the truth, and therefore God gives them strong delusion, and they will believe a lie instead. But notice in verse 23 that God's judgment is, is pronounced as a practical judgment. He says, I will, I, will, I will deal with every man according to, uh, I will give unto every one of you according to your works. In other words, God's judgment is practical. It's not only disciplinary in nature, but it is exemplary. That is, God not only uses judgment as a means of discipline or punishment, but he uses it as an example as well that others may not sin. Paul wrote to Timothy and he said in 1 Timothy 5 verse 20, he said this, Them that sin rebuke before all that others may fear. Same thing. So he's saying here, the judgment that I'm about to bring is not only punitive, but it is also as a pattern or an example. That is to say to you, you need to learn to fear God and the judgment that could come and turn in repentance and make things right with him. I think of what the Lord said through Ezekiel in chapter 38. Uh, and when he deals there with the, on, uh, the, the future invasion of Russia, of Israel, the nation of Israel. And the Lord said, just talking of how he will destroy Russia in their invasion of Israel. He says in verse 23, Thus will I magnify myself and sanctify myself, I will be known in the eyes of many nations, and they shall know that I am the Lord. But notice something else about this judgment. It's not only, uh, it's not only a practical judgment, but notice it's, he is perfect in his judgment. Verse 23, the latter part of verse, and he said, I will give unto every one of you according to your works. In Scripture, remember this, salvation is always according to faith. Judgment is always according to works. Who other than our Lord can get, bring perfect judgment? Who other than Him can bring perfect judgment? For He alone is able to see and know our life from front to finish. He knows the underlying motives of our life. He knows the conduct of our life. He knows the effect of our sin. He knows the, the influence that it will bear on others. And thus God's judgment is perfect judgment for he doesn't leave one stone unturned when he brings a judgment. But finally, I got to close with this. You've been kind. But verse 24 down through verse 28, he gives to these in Thyatira a word of consolation. Notice verse 24. He said, I will put upon you none other burden. Apparently, the things in Thyatira had gone so far that the remnant of believers in Thyatira could cope with it no longer. And thus the Lord said, I'm not going to ask you to do what's impossible. His demands, his burdens are reasonable. And he's saying, perhaps it has gone so far that, that there's nothing else you can do. Sin and error will have to run its course, as did in the case of the Amorites. Their judgment was full before God let Israel come in and run them out of the land and give that promised land to Israel. Notice verse 25. He simply now tells them these words. Stay clear, he's saying in verse 25, stay clear of the cult uh, with its satanic doctrine and maintain your testimony that you have until... I come and step in and take control of the affairs that are there. Maintain your distance with the cult 
and with a satanic doctrine. Verse 26 says, And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. In other words, what he's simply saying is this, you will rule and reign with me. And we'll read and study a little bit more as we go in this book of Revelation about the literal reign of Jesus Christ on this earth and how that those who are faithful will rule and reign with him in his kingdom and be a part of his government. Verse 28, finally he says, and I will give him the morning star. Certainly the morning star is in reference to none other than our Lord Jesus Christ himself. It reminds me of the old story of a, a very wealthy man in the city of Rome in centuries past. He had died and left his will behind. And when the will was read, the will declared that he left all of his possessions to a slave of his by the name of Marcellus. And in the will, however, he stipulated this, that my son may have one choice and only one choice. And the wise son made his choice and said, I will take Marcellus. In other words, when we possess the Lord Jesus, we possess everything. He is our all and in all. All thank God that you and I have the privilege of knowing him in whom God has entrusted everything, entrusted all power, entrusted all wisdom, and we choose him as Lord and as Savior. What a wise choice. Well, here then is the church of Thyatira. There are many things that I wish we'd had time to deal with, but you've been very patient. I hope you've learned something tonight. And we'll continue these studies on Sunday evenings as the summer goes by. And hopefully uh, as we move uh, out of this church area, uh, you'll begin to see how exciting uh, even the prophetic things that are yet to come are looming up before us and are certainly uh, on the horizon. Let's be faithful to God. Let's be true to Him. Let's stand together as we pray. You know, God sees every one of us. He is a God of mercy and love. But I must remind you as a faithful servant, He is a holy God. The Lord desires in His love and mercy to forgive you of your sin. But because He is a holy God, he cannot overlook your sin. He must either pardon, forgive your sin, or else bring judgment as a result. The Lord's desire is that you not perish, but that you be saved, that you go to heaven when you die. But if you refuse his offer of mercy and forgiveness and salvation in Christ, you make hell as your choice. The Lord loves you more than you'll ever know. He sees you, he knows you, as he says of these in this church of Thyatira, he knows you. And if there are needs in your life tonight, listen, Jesus Christ can meet those needs. If you need to know that he has forgiven you of your sin, you can know that before you leave this room. If you do not know Christ as your personal Savior, if you cannot really say in your heart, I have been saved, I've trusted Christ, I know if I were to die tonight, I'd go to heaven. You can say that before you leave. If you're a child of God and maybe you've just been glazing over some of the acts of disobedience and sin and rebellion in your life, oh, how you need to realize the Lord wants to give you his best and his blessing. But when we walk contrary to him, we're inviting his judgment and his wrath. God help us to humble ourselves and surrender to him. Father, we pray tonight as we sing a stanza soul of invitation. That there are folks in this room tonight that you know and they know that you do know them. You have talked to them, you have pled with them through conscience, through the Holy Spirit, through the Word of God, through the witness of others. And over and over again they have realized what needs to be done in their life. Some need to trust you as Savior. Some who are saved need to make a fresh and new commitment of their lives to you. Some have just been halfway involved in serving you. May there be a total surrender tonight. And Lord, if there are some here who are saved but have never been obedient in baptism, help them to take that step tonight of obedience. May you be glorified in the decisions and the moves that we make in this service. And I'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Our heads are bowed.